Let me tell you about something that happened to someone that most of us know. Uh, this is a list of things that this person experienced. <clears throat> uh, this individual, this person, this, this guy, um, he uh, was imprisoned on numerous occasions. He was uh, whipped and left for dead numerous times, tortured, beaten, left for dead. Actually, five times, uh, five individual times, he received uh, 39 lashes, which is just astounding. He was beaten with rods. He was pelted by stones. He was actually shipwrecked three times, three times. And, and one of those times, he, he was left in the middle of the, of the waters for 24 hours. He was never able to call a place home, and he had to move from place to place constantly, always fearful for his life, never safe. He was a victim uh, by numerous robberies. Uh, He was in danger no matter where he went, and he spent days on end without sleep. He experienced deep hunger and deep thirst. And he'd been left out in the cold, naked, and all of this had happened to this individual while, at the same time, he was the preeminent leader of the entire Christian church at the time. Now, maybe maybe you figured it out, who I'm talking about, but this is the Apostle Paul that we read about in the New Testament. And these are the details of things that he actually points out that he's experienced, hardships that he experienced in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23-28. through 28. He lists these. And we're going to talk about how this isn't just him waxing poetic, but there's a reason why it is that he's, that he's bringing these things to our attention. But... In Philippians chapter 4, specifically verse 12, this is what he says. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I've been there and done that, and I know what it is to have plenty. Well, actually, so, the, so Paul, for those of you who may not remember or know, prior to Paul making the decision to follow Jesus and make him the leader of their life. Prior to that moment, and, and it's famously d- described in that, in that road to Damascus where Jesus reveals himself to Paul, and Paul's life is forever changed. But prior to that, Paul was part of the pharisaical uh, sect, and, and his mission, his job, his desire was to persecute Christians, specifically to find them, to put them in prison, possibly even sentence them to death. That's what Paul was set out to do, and he largely did that because he, as well as other people um, of the Jewish community, saw Christianity as some sort of religious cult and something that had to be squashed. It spat in the face of Jewish belief and religiosity. And so you could, you could assume that prior to Paul experiencing the salvation that was afforded him because of Jesus Christ, prior to that, Paul probably lived a relatively comfortable life. And so he probably had everything that he wanted, everything that he needed. And then when he made the decision to follow Jesus and became a part of this movement that was at all the time, at every moment, was being, was being accosted and, and attacked, you can imagine then that Paul experienced, and we see this in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 11, we see how Paul suffered. So he knows what it is to be in need, and he knows what it is to be, uh, to be uh, in a position where you have plenty, but yet Paul further states, so the second half of verse 12, he says this, I have learned the secret. I've learned the secret. Now, you should always be suspicious of anybody that says, I've learned the secret of something, right? But Paul here, he says this. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, no matter the situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. So he's saying that no matter my circumstances, whether I've been on the mountaintop or whether I've been on the valley, because we've all, we're all riding this roller coaster, we're all on waves of an ocean, we're rising and we're falling, I've known what it means to, to, to be in want and to have plenty, but I've learned the secret of being content. What is the secret that Paul is referring to? What is the secret here that he is stating that he has learned? Well, in order to determine the secret that Paul here is stating in verse 12 of Philippians 4, we have to first determine what the secret is not. I like doing this. I like when, whenever I begin determining what something is, I often first look at what it is not. It gives me a clearer picture as to what the actuality of that is. So what, what is it that it is not? The secret here that Paul is referring to is not Paul himself. It's not Paul himself. It's not Paul, nor is it something within him that he's mustering up, something that he's, that he's reaching deep inside and then manifesting in his life. It isn't Paul, and it isn't something within him, some inner strength. Paul emphasizes this. He emphasizes that it's not me, it's not something within me, it's some inner strength. He emphasizes this by pointing to all his ups and downs as we, as we uh, looked at in 2 Corinthians 11. Contentment couldn't possibly be something up to me is what Paul is saying. Contentment couldn't possibly be something that I've created or that is a creation of any way, shape, or form of mine. And so thus, if it's not Paul, and if it's not something that comes from some sort of inner self or inner strength, the secret is something outside of Paul. It's something outside of Paul. And if it's coming from outside of Paul, then it has to come from somewhere or something or someone else. If we look at verse 12 again, he says, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, he emphasizes that this is a reality for each of us and the world. The world, and we are a part of the world, and we experience this as well, the world is saturated by the next best thing. What's the next biggest thing? Even our kids understand this. They learn this really easy. I remember when I was a kid, when I was a little guy about my son's age, maybe a little younger, I was all about G.I. Joe. 
Anybody remember G.I. Joe? Please don't make me feel like I'm old. Thank you so much. G.I. Joe was it for me. And I wanted the aircraft carrier, which was this huge thing. And I asked every single birthday, every single Christmas for this aircraft carrier and never got it because it was super expensive. And my friend had it and I was super jealous, but I wanted this. It was huge. Kids, you know, we want like big toys. It's funny, my daughter, she's getting older. She's 14 now, and it's like her, the things that she wants are smaller, but strangely, they're becoming more expensive. I don't understand how that works. But our kids understand this, that the world is saturated with the next best thing. There were a series of commercials a number of years back uh, from AT&T, and I loved them. I thought that they were hilarious. It was uh, a guy, um, and he was interviewing kids. Do you remember these commercials from AT&T? Well, if you don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jog your memory. So uh, our kids understand that the world is saturated with what's big. We, we, we know what's big and what's not, uh, just, like, just like this video. Hey, what's the biggest number you can think of? A trillion, billion, zillion. That's pretty big. How about you? Ten. Okay. How about you? Infinity. Can you top that? Infinity in one. Actually, we are looking for infinity plus infinity. Sorry. What about infinity times infinity? Oh. <laughs> we're, we, we, we know what's big and what's not, and we're also really consumed with wanting more. We want more. And again, our kids understand this very well. Check out this other video. Who thinks more is better than less? Okay, why? More is better than less because if stuff is not less, if there's more less stuff, then you might you might want to have some more, and your parents just don't let you because there's only a little. Right. We want more. We want more. Like you really like it. You right. want more. I follow you. <laughs> I love that. We want more. We want more. We want more. Consider the iPhone, okay? Many of us have an iPhone. If you don't have an iPhone, chances are you probably have had one at some point or you will at some point. Uh, the iPhone is just everywhere. And the iPhone itself, all right, it started, the first one came out in 2007. Is anybody here, did anybody here have the very first iPhone in, in 2007? Anyone? Very few people actually did, but now it's become something that's in almost every single person's hand. Since 2007, that's 13 years, since 2007, there have been 29 variations of the iPhone. 29. I don't even have the newest iPhone, but it feels like just yesterday that I got it, and now it's considered a dinosaur. It's just crazy. I mean, this is a good illustration. Check out this short video.
It's just, it's just crazy. 29 variations of the iPhone since 2007. I mean, there, there is a marketing branch of Apple whose sole purpose is to convince you that you need the next iPhone. Not that you should want it, but that you need it. And they do a really good job of that. This is just one example of the world's desire to want the next best thing. So what does it mean to be content? Paul says this, right? We looked at that verse. I've learned the secret, the secret of being content. Well, what does it mean to be content? Someone, someone give me an answer. What, is it, what does contentment mean? Happy with what you have, okay. Selling for less, all right. Say again. Be thankful for what you have. Okay, all right. Those are understandable definitions. We, we would all, if I went around and asked you to each give a definition of contentment, that would be some iteration of what it is that you would say. This is what contentment is. But we got to take a pause here for a second because that's not actually what Paul is saying. That's not actually what the Bible defines contentment as. We, we take words... And we associate meanings to those words. And this is, this is the trouble that we get ourselves in when we look at Scripture, when we look at the Bible. Because if we just automatically take these words and we associate those meanings to those words, and then we use that to inform what the Bible is telling us, we can often misinterpret what the Bible is actually saying. So how do we get around that? We get around that by considering its original meaning. There are words that we use, for instance, today in the English language uh, that means something different. If you were to say um, uh, a certain word here in America and, a, and that same word in England in some cases, it would have a completely different meaning, even though it's the same word. So, with that being said, we have to consider how was the Bible, specifically the New Testament, what was it written in, and what language was it written in? It was written in ancient Koine Greek, Koine Greek, and those words then, when we look at those meanings, have very specific definitions. So the word content that Paul is referring to, I've learned the secret of being content. That word is the Greek word atarkes, atarkes. And that's a really important word because the definition of that word is this, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency and finding resources in self. Self-sufficiency and finding resources in self. So the Bible saying, is saying that contentment is, is you being self-sufficient. Or The Bible isn't saying that, but that, that Bible is saying the definition of contentment is self-sufficiency and finding resources in self. Now, this is critical. This is critical as we consider this verse and in understanding how it is that we can be content. And the reason why this is critical is because, again, of what Paul says here, I've learned the secret of being content. Paul, in this passage, is turning the word contentment on its head. He's turning contentment on its head in that contentment is an absolutely, positively elusive and impossible thing 
when you and I focus on finding it ourselves. I want to make that clear. I have to emphasize that even more. Contentment is an absolutely elusive and impossible thing if you and I set out to find it ourselves. The very word contentment that Paul is saying here, the very word is a paradox. And the reason it's a paradox is because you and I, we cannot, cannot, cannot be content because self-sufficiency is impossible within the construct of a sinful human condition. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot satisfy, uh, bring satisfaction to our lives fully and completely because life is the, is the gradual experience of loss. Life is the reality of gradual decay. On this side of eternity, on this side of eternity, when we are in the presence of God for all eternity, for those that have decided to follow Jesus and make him the leader of our lives, we will experience inevitably the gradualness of decay and loss. I just found out yesterday that a good friend of mine from college died in a motorcycle crash a couple days ago on his birthday. And he just went out for a drive, just as a, as a birthday ride and and, and died, 42 years old, three kids, just like that. And I have a motorcycle myself. I've had one for a number of years. And that's something I, 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 I do quite often. You never know, right? You never know when that moment is going to happen. It will happen. We cannot be content because self-sufficiency is impossible within the construct of a sinful human condition in the reality that life, the life that we live, is a gradual experience of loss and decay. Thus, the secret, the secret of contentment isn't in the pursuit of it. The secret of contentment is in, isn't in us acquiring it, isn't in us finding it, isn't in us striving to, 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 uh, to live it. The secret of contentment is in the source. It's not in the pursuit. It's in the source. In that the only way contentment the only way that contentment can, can avoid the paradoxical nature of its existence, that self-sufficiency, that self-reliance, the only way that contentment can avoid that paradoxical nature is when it is applicable to God alone. In that God, and this is important, God is the only one who can be content. God has the monopoly, the complete monopoly on contentment. He is the only one who can be content. Why? Because he is the only being who can be self-sufficient. That's why contentment isn't about the pursuit. It's about the source. 
So if you want to be content, if you want to experience contentment, you don't focus on the pursuit, you focus on the source of that contentment. It's not about us becoming content. It's about us rather drawing from God's contentment in that being content for us is an act of actually borrowing the contentment that belongs to God and God alone. That's why Paul says the secret in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says, I can do all this through him, through God that gives me strength. Nothing from himself, no mustering within himself, no pulling himself up by his bootstraps. It is God alone. Why did, P, why did Paul feel the need to share his hardships in 2 Corinthians 11? All those things that I listed at the beginning of my message. Why did he feel the need to share all those things? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, he says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I'll boast in the reality of my inadequacy. Not that I'm trying to become weak, Not that I'm trying to minimize myself in order to achieve some sort of status with God. No, I'm recognizing what is actually the true reality of my existence. I am weak. I am unable to sustain myself. It is impossible for me to experience contentment in and of myself. And then he concludes in 2 Corinthians 12, he says in verse 10, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And I'm going to try my best to explain this here in this moment. When we delight in our hardships, when we delight in our weaknesses, when we recognize and admit and embrace the fact that we cannot save ourselves, nor can we bring contentment to ourselves, when we accept that, that's freedom. That's freedom. Because then we stop trying to desperately and without any sort of conclusion we stop trying to live our lives in some sort of way where we would somehow acquire that and we instead say god you are the source i'm not going to rely on myself instead i'm going to rely on you for when i am weak He says, our condition, then I am strong. God's condition. Because in Philippians 4.13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's not about the pursuit. It's about the source. There is great freedom in this reality. And there is so much to be thankful for. The last thing I want to bring up here is this card that's inside of your worship folder. 
and we supply this in each one of those and give it a stamp, put a stamp on there. And uh, uh, it's not so that you can send me a Starbucks gift card, you know. But rather, it is so that you can take a tangible, practical step of writing a thank you note to somebody in your life that has had a significant impact, who has, who has made a contribution that you want to recognize and thank this Thanksgiving. We talk about doing stuff like this, but we want to give you the opportunity to practically and actually do that. And so I'm asking if you would take some time, and we're trying to eliminate every possible thing that would keep you from doing it, thus the stamp. All you got to do is take it out, fill it out, seal it up, and put it, put it in the mail, and bless somebody this Thanksgiving. Let's be thankful. God has done so much this year. And I know it is very difficult to consider things that we can be thankful for in light of all that we've experienced. But God has never ceased being God. And He's got so much more to do. And He wants to do that through and in us. Every year, every Thanksgiving, my family and I, we get on the floor underneath our table. It's a table that we've taken to every place that, that, we've, that we've lived since we've had this table. And we have Sharpies, and we write on the bottom of that table what we're thankful for this year. We won't have any problem thinking of what it is that we can thank God for this year, and I hope that that is the case for you as well. I want to invite you to be a part of our Thanksgiving service here tonight. We're going to have it at 5 p.m. Um, we are, uh, we'll be here. Uh, we'll get the live stream uh, situated before that. That'll be live streamed as well. And uh, we're going to then uh, get together for the, um, the Congregational Life Meeting immediately following that. If you're a member, I strongly encourage you to be a part of that. We're going to be voting on the budget for the 2021 calendar year, as well as our new uh, worship director candidate, Alyssa Siracos, who, coincidentally, will also be leading worship with me at the Thanksgiving service tonight. So it'll be a tremendous time and uh, hopefully a blessing. Thank you so much for being here today. I love you all. I hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.